Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome back, future doctors and anyone else who might be listening. Thank you for joining us today for another episode. Today, we are going to discuss a topic that affects almost everyone's lives in one way or another. It might affect you directly, or it might affect someone you care about. The topic is depression and anxiety. Now, you might notice that it's not really one topic, but two topics combined, depression and anxiety. They are definitely different in some important ways, but they also share many similarities. For example, both depression and anxiety can be treated with similar types of therapy and medications. To help us discuss this important topic, we have a special guest joining us, Dr. Renee Garcia, who is a board-certified psychiatrist. In other words, she is a medical doctor that specializes in diagnosing and treating mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, personality disorders, and much more. Dr. Renee Garcia received her Bachelor of Science degree in biochemistry from the California State University, Los Angeles. After college, she did lab research in both molecular biology and biochemistry. She earned her medical degree from Loma Linda University's School of Medicine in Southern California. She then went on to do her residency in general adult psychiatry at University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine. She was a star resident, earning awards and becoming a chief resident in her fourth year. She also completed a fellowship at Stanford in psychosomatic medicine. She then became an assistant clinical professor at Stanford, where she focuses on suicidality in medically ill patients, agitation in hospitalized patients, and management of psychiatric conditions in the emergency room and ICU. She is also director of the Psychiatric Consultation Liaison Service at a community hospital in Newport Beach, California. She is passionate about applying her knowledge of psychosomatic medicine and the biopsychosocial model to her patients, and even helps train other doctors about how to use these to help their patients. You can hear more about her journey to becoming a doctor and what she loves about her job in a future episode coming soon. But in this episode, we're going to ask her to share her knowledge and expertise to explore the topics of depression and anxiety. Dr. Garcia, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you ladies and everyone listening. So both Dr. Zuma and I have been pretty open in talking about mental health struggles. I mentioned in episode three how I struggled with depression for many years, starting in college and going many years through medical school. It was really hard to admit to myself that I needed help at first, mostly because of cultural ideas about mental health that I had grown up with. But luckily, I did eventually seek help. I found a great psychiatrist. I took medication and went to therapy for a few years. And eventually I learned coping strategies to the point that I was able to get off of medication and do very well. Dr. Zulma, if I could recall correctly, you also struggled with some depression at some point and even later lost a family member to suicide. Is that right? Yes, Dr. Marina, that is right. I kept a lot of my depression and anxiety to myself throughout my life. I think my depression started as a child because my father was an alcoholic. My father struggled with alcoholism for many years, and there was a lot of verbal abuse in my home. Thankfully, never physical abuse, but to be honest, verbal abuse can be just as bad. The verbal abuse was toward my mother, my siblings, and myself. I, however, took more of the parental child role in my family, so felt like I had to be the strong one. 
I never showed feelings of sadness to my family. I tried to never cry in front of my family members, especially never in front of my mom since I had to be the strong one. I didn't want to show her that I was depressed. Eventually, these feelings turned into anger in high school. I was an angry kid towards my family. I remember being really mean to my sister and mom sometimes, and then of course I felt guilty afterwards. I recall crying a lot in high school as well when I was alone. Unfortunately, since I didn't speak up about it, I didn't get the therapy until I was in medical school after I lost my uncle, who was like a second father to me. He committed suicide during my second year of medical school. I thought I had lost part of my life. I came to realize that perhaps depression runs in my family after this happened. I just wish he wouldn't have made this decision to treat his problem. I miss him so much and he was an important part of our family. Anyhow, through the guidance of Dr. Christine Moutier, who was the assistant dean at my medical school, she saved me and suggested I talk to a therapist. I can't believe today that it took so long for myself to get therapy. And when I did, I confronted all those years of depression and anxiety. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Zulma. Now, we haven't talked too much about anxiety so far in this podcast, except we did mention test anxiety when we talked about test-taking skills in episode 12. But many people struggle with general anxiety, too, anything from mild anxiety to full-blown panic attacks. In fact, many people suffer from a combination of depression and anxiety. So we definitely want to cover both today. So Dr. Garcia, let's define a few terms first for our listeners. To start off, what exactly is depression? So in the field of psychiatry, we organize many of the different disorders that we diagnose and treat into clusters. So you would have mood disorders, anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders, personality disorders, as you described earlier in the introduction. Depressive disorders is an umbrella term that encompasses many different psychiatric diagnoses. And that can be as minor as a minor depressive episode, a major depressive episode, which is typically what an individual in society today, when they say is dealing with depression, they're talking about a major depressive episode. However, depression can also occur in the context of bipolar disorder, which is also a mood disorder. Um, Depression can also occur in one of our psychotic spectrum disorders called schizoaffective disorder. There's a specific subtype called depressive subtype. It could also occur in the context of a severe trauma. Um, And PTSD is associated with a depressed mood as as one of the the cardinal symptoms. And then there's just what we would label as an adjustment disorder. Someone is dealing with a significant loss, a significant uh, stressor, and subsequently develop depressive symptoms, but they're adjusting to something horrible happening in their lives. And, And a normal kind of reactive process to that is dealing with a depressed mood. Gotcha. Um, So when someone is experiencing a depressive episode, whether that be mild or severe or anything, any of those others that you mentioned, what is the depressive part of that? What are they feeling? Is it just crying all the time, trouble sleeping? What what does it look like typically? Sure. So depression is what we would consider to be a syndrome. Okay. And what we mean when we describe it as a syndrome is that it is associated with the cluster of symptoms. So one person's cluster of depressive symptoms may look very different from another person. And there are two main symptoms that a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or a therapist may look for that let us know that we're dealing likely with a depressive episode. Okay, now the first of which would be sadness or depression, just like the name describes. 
Um, the second one is something big fancy jargon term called anhedonia. But essentially what that term anhedonia means is that there is a lack of happiness, a lack of joy, something that once brought you so much pleasure and happiness is no longer there. You no longer experience that mood elevation that comes with it. Now, when we're dealing with those two symptoms, those are necessary for someone to get the formal diagnosis of depression. However, when depression is in its severe form, it really can affect the way the body functions. And again, this is one of the the, the reasons why I tell my patients, this is more than just, you know, oh, you had something bad happen in your life and now you're feeling sad. This is, it, it affects the body. This is a biological process that's happening in the brain because it can affect the way the body functions. It can affect an individual's ability to concentrate. It can affect ability to have normal energy levels, to be able to sleep through the night and feel restored and rested in the morning. It can affect someone's appetite and it, it can go both ways, actually. Some individuals they don't eat as much and they get decreased appetite. Some individuals will actually overeat and use eating as a means of comforting themselves. Sometimes it's, you know, having such difficulty motivating yourself to get up, to start your day, get in the shower, make it to class, get your homework done, where every task that once felt very much default is so much more difficult. It takes twice as long to get going for the day, to get out of the house, to make it to class, and and everything becomes that much more of a struggle. Now, when depression starts to enter into its severe forms, we start to see very worrisome signs of hopelessness, where my life isn't going to get better. Am I always going to be in this state? I don't want to live like this if this is what living feels like. Oh, I'm a burden on everyone around me and I'm just bringing people down. Um, I shouldn't be here. People would be better off if I wasn't here. And of course, that is definitely the entryway into dealing with suicidal thoughts um, and potentially leading individuals to attempt suicide. Mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned that. The fact that depression is very physical, because I think sometimes we sort of think as like emotional problems and like feelings as like having to do with our brain and our brain somehow is magically disconnected from our body and the rest of what goes on in our body and our physiology, but it's very much connected. (laughs) There's a very strong connection between our mind and the rest of our body. Our brain is part of our body. So I love that you mentioned that. One question I have is, you know, thinking back to when I was struggling with the worst of my depression during medical school, I think sometimes we have the idea that if you look at someone, you can kind of tell that they're depressed. Like they'll be crying a lot. They'll be keeping to themselves. They'll look a certain way. They'll act a certain way. But in reality, I find that a lot of people, including myself, are very good at hiding symptoms of depression. So when I was like in class or in a group setting, I put on a happy face. And it was really when I was in private or at home with my husband, that those symptoms really manifested. Um, Can you touch a little bit on that? You know, is it true that you can tell if someone is depressed just by looking at them or not necessarily? Yeah, that doesn't ring true in all situations of depression. Um, There are many people who really try to put on a happy face. They 
don't want to burden their loved ones. They already are in such a depressive, sad state for most of their life and most of the time that when they go out, when they do finally get themselves out there, I don't want to be a burden on them. I don't want to bring them down. I want them, they're happy. I want them to live their best life, to be happy. And I'm not going to be the one that's going to change their mood and bring them down. And so they'll put on a happy face. They'll put on, you know, this, I'm, everything's great. I'm fine. Everything's the same. You don't have to worry about me. I'm wonderful. Things are great. But in reality, they're suffering. And they oftentimes suffer when they're in, in silence, when they're alone, when they're isolated. That's when depression symptoms really come out and you don't necessarily have to hide that kind of your body and the depression takes over when you're by yourself. Now, there definitely are situations where you have a long lasting friendship where you know that individual in and out and there can be these small, subtle changes in how they carry themselves, how they conduct themselves in a social setting. Maybe they're a little bit more quiet. Maybe you notice they're staring off and they're not as engaged in the conversation that they would be where, you know, typically she loves when we talk about this and and now she's staring in the corner and, and not really focused, not really engaging those small, subtle things that, you know, most people would just brush off as, oh, maybe she's feeling tired today. Maybe she's worried about a test tomorrow, but it could actually be a sign that there's something else going on and they could be struggling. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Garcia, as you're talking about, that really reminds me of my uncle. My uncle was the, you can say the life of the family. This was the guy who went out to learn how to do these magic tricks to entertain people. He would plan our family parties, our family trips, and really kept our family together. So for us, it was very shocking to realize that eventually this was a person who ended up committing suicide. Although thinking back, Towards the end, the helplessness that you're speaking about was all he can hold on to, like that life was just not going to get better. Dr. Garcia, one more question specifically about depression. Um, So what is it that causes depression? I think, you know, for some people, they can be really happy and content and functioning well in their life for many, many years or even decades and then suddenly be hit with an episode of depression. Um, Is it situational? Is it genetic? Is it a combination of both? You know, each one of those rings true for a lot of individuals. Some who have a strong family history of anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, alcoholism, and addiction, um, those disorders we know now to be heritable, passed on from generation to generation. So there is, for many individuals out there, a significant component of biology. It's passed down, it's in your genes that you are a person who's vulnerable to experiencing depression and anxiety. There are other circumstances where, like Dr. Zulma described, is, is losing her uncle was a humongous loss, but not only for her, but for her entire family. Having losses that stay with you, that that impact you to your very core can bring about and trigger a depression or anxiety disorder. For many, sometimes it's stress and they are so worried about this. They're they're going full speed ahead. I'm working, I'm going to school. I have to be there for my family. I have to be there for my younger siblings that they don't take time to tend to themselves. 
we all need balance in our lives. And when we are giving so much of ourselves externally into the outside world, to our loved ones, to school, to work, we don't have much time and energy to restore ourselves, to keep ourselves in in, an emotionally centered space. And and that can bring about depression. And one other thing that I, I feel like doesn't get as much attention as it really should is the common situation where depression arises in the context of a medical condition. My fellowship is was in the specialty of psychosomatic medicine, where you deal directly with the mind and the body, psychosomatic. And when an individual is dealing with a depression or an anxiety disorder, it can come out of having your quality of life destroyed by having a chronic medical condition. Certain medications certain inflammatory disorders. So when when someone has a chronic medical condition, there's a lot of inflammation experience in the body. And there has been associations between inflammation and inducing depression and anxiety. So all of those can contribute to the onset of a depressive disorder or depressive episode. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Garcia, what about anxiety? How would you define anxiety and how is it different from depression? So, anxiety again is is one of the big umbrella terms that we use in psychiatry to encompass many different anxiety spectrum disorders. Again, I use the term anxiety spectrum because it truly is a spectrum. It can um, start with mild, mild anxiety, stress, test-taking anxiety, anxiety with public speaking, all the way to the most extreme form of anxiety, which is a panic attack. But a lot of things fall underneath that as well. You know, generalized anxiety where an individual just may feel anxious about any and all situations. Some people have social anxiety where it's specifically when they're engaging with people in the social setting. There are different specific phobias that induce a lot of anxiety and fear. For me, it's spiders, you know, and that definitely for some individuals, if I was an exterminator, that could be a really problematic fear or phobia to have. And so anxiety, it it really is a spectrum. And for many people, they have a hard time putting their experience into words. And when I'm meeting with a patient whose chief complaint or when they come to me, I've been dealing with a lot of anxiety, I open that up with a very broad question, how do you experience anxiety? And the reason for that is because how Jane experiences it may be very different from how Brandon experiences anxiety. And to really be able to parse that out can matter in what treatments are put into place. For many, they don't have the verbiage, the the words to describe and articulate what they're experiencing. And so when I talk with these types of patients, I will break things down. And I really describe anxiety in, in two ways. There's the physical anxiety and the psychological anxiety. And physical anxiety is how is when anxiety is very much experienced in the body, whether that be physical tension restlessness, this inner feeling of restlessness. I should be doing something. I have to do something. I can't sit still, you know, feeling as though it's the end of the day. You had a long day at school. I've been studying. I did all my homework. Um, I went to work. Now is the time for your, for your body and your brain to get rest. 
to restore and so that you can pick that up and, and go the next day. But when an anxiety disorder is present and they have significant physical symptoms, it can affect your ability to wind down at the end of the day where you're laying there and your body and your mind just won't let you rest. And the biggest example of physical anxiety is like I described earlier is, is the panic attack. You know, of course, with a panic attack, there's fear and anxiety 10 out of 10. It's probably the most that anyone could ever experience. And if, if you've never had a panic attack, most people can't even imagine anxiety on this scale. But that fear, that in sense of impending doom, something horrible is happening. Most of the time, people who have a panic attack end up in the emergency room because there's this fear. What's happening to me? I'm dying. My body is something's going wrong here and I need medical and emergency help. I mean, a lot of that is because people can feel like they can't catch their breath. There's this hyperventilation. They, they feel like they can't breathe. There's a chest tightness for some individuals. They'll even experience chest pain, numbness on their fingers, toes, around their mouth, nausea, dizziness. Some people will even faint. I recently had a patient whose experience for panic attacks was the sense of impending doom and horrible fear, but she shut down. She had all these internal physical cues, but on the outside, there was nothing that her friends or family could see. She's just staring out, but internally, she's in this horrible space of racing heart, feeling tremulous, feeling nauseous, feeling dizzy, like she's going to pass out and and she can't even get those words out to communicate, I need help. Um, so that would be, you know, and again, the severest form of, of how physical anxiety may manifest itself. But then there's the psychological anxiety, which is the anxiety that's very much inside our mind. The worries that we tell ourselves, the, oh my goodness, I have my homework to do. I have to worry about my siblings. I have to get to work on time. And what happens if I don't pass that test? I'll never be able to get into the school that I want. And, and it's just one worry after another. And a lot of times my patients will describe, my brain doesn't shut down. I try to push these worries, like I'm going to push the worry about that test out because I, that's 10 weeks from now. I have time to study for that final. It's not necessary for me to, to, to worry about that in this moment. But you put that aside and guess what? There's another worry ready to take its place. And that can go on and on and on for people where these worries just play around again and again on like a broken record. And the psychological anxiety for many people makes it the hardest to focus. You know, you're so very much inside your mind about what all these worries are that you're not paying attention in class. Like, oh man, what did my professor just say? I didn't write those notes down. And guess what? That in and of itself, that missing that five minutes, it's going to breed another 30 minutes of anxiety because you're sure that that five minutes that you missed is going to be what the final most important question is going to be on. And it just spirals out from that point on. And so anxiety can be very problematic and very distressing and can infect one's ability to function and their quality of life just to even get through the day, similar like we talked about in, in depression. I love that example that you gave, Dr. Josia, that, you know, that sounds so familiar. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I just learn? I zoned out. I was thinking about something else. Oh no, I'm going to fail the test. <laughs> that sounds very familiar. 
Um, one thing I wanted to ask is I work in pediatric urgent care. So I do see a fair number of teenagers that come in with their first panic attack. And those symptoms you described of like, you know, dizziness, nausea, racing heart, trouble breathing, numbness in your hands or feet, those I see a lot in those patients. Now, lots of times because it's the first time they've ever experienced this, they have no idea what's going on, what's causing it. They're afraid that there's something wrong with their heart or their lungs or their nervous system. Yeah. They're afraid of having a heart attack. They're afraid that there's something very physically wrong, um, like you mentioned. So there's this sense of impending doom. But I also find that a lot of these patients are not able to really connect it to what's going on in their mind, to that psychology, to the things that have been going on in their life and their thought processes. How do you help patients to make that connection between what's going on in your mind or your psychology and your physical self? I generally start pretty open-ended. Tell me what's going on in your life right now. Or do you find that you're worried about anything in particular? And let them start talking. And, you know, some, some teenagers and some adolescents um, and some just personalities have a hard time being introspective, being able to look inward. Am I stressed about things? Because so much of being able to buckle down, I'm strong, I can get through with this, is everything's okay. And to be able to acknowledge that you're stressed and worried about something means that you actually have to acknowledge it. Um, and that means if you're talking about it, then I am saying that there's something wrong here. I'm not that strong. And it can affect people really negatively in that way if, if they let down their guard. And a lot of times when you start talking with individuals and, and young adults, tell me about your home life. How's school going for you? And if you find that they're still having a hard time opening up, I will often give other examples. Oh, you know, the last patient I seen that had a similar presentation was dealing with, you know, having a difficult hard life. Mom's working two jobs and is never really there and you're having to prepare dinner for your young siblings or you failed a test and mom's upset and they won't talk with you and they're getting giving you the cold shoulder because they you're not rising to the occasion. So there's usually some underlining issue that will come out, whether or not they're willing to acknowledge it as the source of the panic attack. If you can at least get them thinking about it, then when they go home and they're, they're reflecting on it, they can try to make those associations on their own. But I would say by and large, most people are at least able to recognize, well, I have been pretty worried about this. Oh, you know, I actually have been pretty worried about my dad who's dealing with, a, a, you know, an addictive disorder at this time. There's usually something that comes up to where you can help them make those associations. And, and even if you can't, especially in a pediatric urgent care setting, you don't need to solve the, you know, the mystery in that moment. Just give them the tools to recognize. And even if you don't recognize what causes right now, just know that stress level, not taking care of yourself, not eating, not sleeping well, those things can lead to these type of attacks and allowing them to go home and simmer with it and reflect on it and helping them that. So the next time they have one, 
And if they do have a future attack, they can reflect on that and say, you know what? I actually was really stressed about that one particular test, or I was really stressed about that fight with my boyfriend or girlfriend, and helping them make that association so that later on they can seek out help. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, So I think many listeners might look at their lives and their day-to-day experiences and think, you know, I sometimes or I often feel sad, down, or depressed, or I often really feel nervous or anxious about things, sometimes have trouble eating or sleeping because of it. But how do you know if your depression or anxiety symptoms are severe enough that you should go and seek professional help, like a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist? Well, the the way that a psychiatrist or psychologist is going to look at a cluster of symptoms, whether that be sadness or anxiety symptoms, and is this affecting your ability to do your day-to-day activities? Is it affecting your quality of life, you know, that you're just not enjoying the things that you used to? You're not enjoying the people around you. Symptoms like depression and anxiety can affect relationships. If you do have a intimate partner, how you communicate with them, how much you're able to spend time with them, how engaged you are, um, how much love and communication you put into each of those relationships can be affected in a negative way. So when depression and anxiety symptoms start to transition into that realm where you're experiencing it every day. You're finding that it's affecting your ability to do daily activities, to take care of yourself, to take care of your health. It's affecting your relationships. That's when any mental health professional would encourage you to seek out professional help. Now, if you're talking about when to seek out therapy, minor symptoms can actually significantly improve with therapy. It doesn't have to be a significantly severe anxiety or depressive disorder to gain benefit from therapy. Medications, on the other hand, are a bit different in which if we're going to put you on a medication and every medication has its its risk for side effects, we would really want it to be to the point of where it's affecting your day-to-day activities and quality of life because you're exposing yourself to potential other adverse effects. But really, that is where I draw the line in the sand as to, okay, now's the time that we seek out help. So if someone feels that they do have depression or anxiety to the point that they should get help, who should they talk to? Their primary care doctor, a psychiatrist or psychologist? What are your suggestions? Well, I think that that the answer to that question varies depending on the individual, where they're located, what access to care they have. For many, if you have a good relationship with your primary care doctor, I know that pediatricians part of their regular evaluations is to talk about social history. What's going on in your life? Uh, You know, how are things going? And the same thing for our family medicine docs. But you would hope, and if you have a good relationship with your primary care doctor, that they're going to ask how you're doing about that. And in fact, a lot of our government agencies, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they actually recommend and mandate that many primary care physicians, whether that be in a pediatric care, family medicine, or internal medicine, screen for depression or anxiety on every visit. So that could be one avenue to getting help is to opening up to your primary care doctor. Now, depending on your own primary care doctor, their 
personal medical experience, some will feel comfortable starting you on medications if it's severe enough. But again, that's, that, that's a personal preference decision. Um, they can also get you connected to a therapist or a psychiatrist by providing you a referral. But, you know, for individuals, you can just reach out to a therapist on your own. You don't really need a referral from your primary care doctor. Um, some insurance companies, depending on the type of insurance that you have, may require that your primary care doctor refer you to a psychiatrist who is considered to be a medical specialist that you may require that. So sometimes some individuals will have to start with their primary care, but you don't need a primary care doctor's referral to seek out therapy. Um, and you can reach out to therapists all on your own and get yourself set up for a series of sessions. Yeah, in fact, a lot of college campuses and medical schools, they do have some sort of psychological services office, counseling services mm -hmm. office. So if you are in school, that's a good place to start. Yeah, and then the high schools as well. They have the usually a school psychologist as well or a, or a clinical social worker too if you're in high school. Definitely. So for our listeners, let's say they um, go and they see the right kind of professional to get help. What can they expect? What are some options for treatment of depression and or anxiety? Is um, therapy alone enough? Um, medication? A combination of the two? Well, again, I feel like so much of mental health treatment is a personal preference. So some individuals may feel strongly that I don't want to try medications unless therapy has not been effective enough. Um, so the first recommendation is always start with therapy. Unlike medications, there's very low likelihood that you're going to experience an adverse event to talking with someone who has the skills to work with you to help you gain some coping skills. Um, so therapy is definitely one that has the potential for high benefit with low risk. Okay. Medications, on the other hand, like I mentioned before, really we, we turn to medications when symptoms tend to be moderate to severe, or as I described in the question before, is when it's affecting your ability to do your daily activities, um, affecting your quality of life, and your relationships is when you would be deemed a candidate for medication treatment. Okay, now there's really two ways that you approach medication treatment symptom focus. And, and, and that is more of, of an individual who's dealing with a significant loss, who is maybe dealing with some moderate to severe depressive or anxiety symptoms in the context of a loss. Something horrible has happened to me, a traumatic event, and I'm trying to get myself recentered. I'm trying to get myself some coping skills and manage the fact that I can't sleep, manage the fact that sometimes I have panic attacks. And you can do a symptom-focused medication approach. For individuals who have panic attacks, we can give a what we call an abortive medication, meaning I'm starting to have a panic attack. You recognize the early signs, and you can take a medication to abort and prevent you from going into that full-blown, horrible panic attack that's going to get you most of the time to the emergency room. For individuals who are dealing with really bad insomnia as part of it, I mean, sleep is one of those crucial, crucial elements to health that if you go without sleep, you're eventually going to get depressed or anxious. You're not going to be your best self the next day if you're not getting rest. So in that situation, another symptom-focused approach would be treating the insomnia 
and hopefully allowing the person's own personal reserves to be able to help them through during the daytime. If someone is meeting criteria for any specific anxiety disorder, whether that be obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, if you're having you know more than a few panic attacks a week or every month, those would be situations in which starting more long-term treatments would be appropriate, okay? And now, and long-term treatments are treated with different antidepressant medication classes. Now, the name is a little bit deceiving because we call them antidepressants. However, they treat both anxiety and depression. And for a lot of times um, when I meet with my patients, I describe what the medication does versus calling it an antidepressant. What these medications do is they target different neurotransmitter systems in the brain. And what neurotransmitters are, they're like hormones that help our brain cells talk to one another. And depression and anxiety has been shown to have low levels of serotonin. And that has been the most studied neurotransmitter system in the setting of both depression and anxiety. Now, there are other antidepressants or medications that are used to treat anxiety and depression that target other neurotransmitter systems like norepinephrine and dopamine. They target those receptor systems by increasing the levels in the brain, thereby fixing or minimizing the severity of the serotonin deficiency or the norepinephrine deficiency. Um, Dopamine is one of those important neurotransmitter systems It's our feel-good neurotransmitter. It's our our pleasure neurotransmitter. That's released when we see a loved one, when we eat our favorite meal, um, when we're experiencing something that's just overwhelmingly happy, dopamine is released. So as, as you can imagine, that also can play a fundamental role in depression. So everyone's not gonna respond to, you know, just a serotonin medication or just a norepinephrine medication or just a dopamine medication. Sometimes individuals need, you know, a lot of serotonin and a little bit of norepinephrine. Some people require dopamine and norepinephrine and no serotonin. So that's one of the reasons why it's so important that if you're going to go down the road of pursuing medication treatment, that you do it with a trained professional, someone who understands the way that these medications work and can follow your response to them as as different neurotransmitter systems are stimulated as a means of correcting depression and anxiety symptoms. Now, we talked about therapy, and there are many different forms of therapy that are very focused on um, depression and anxiety, like cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is more focused towards certain types of personality disorders, eating disorders, but there's also psychodynamic psychotherapy. And then the old kind of, I think many people associate psychoanalysis with Freud. Um, And that's the one that people typically, you know, will, will say, tell me about your mother. It's very much focused on your childhood and how that has impacted your future. So therapy being There's many different specialized types of therapies. There are many different medications that work on different receptor systems. And then there's one other kind of new and emerging field called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what that does is it uses a magnet placed over like a little cap that's put over the top of your head, almost like a little beanie. And it creates a magnetic field around the brain 
stimulating certain areas of the brain that are associated with depression and anxiety. It is FDA approved and for many individuals, if they can't do well, they have side effects or they can't tolerate different medications, transcranial magnetic stimulation is is an option that can be pursued for many. Now, recently there was a new kind of a completely different class of antidepressants. Now, they're not indicated for anxiety disorders, but they are indicated for depressive disorders is something called ketamine. Um, And ketamine can be done in an intranasal form, and it can also be done in an IV form. And, and, And that one really is reserved for exclusively for treatment refractory depression. For individuals that have tried some medications and they didn't work, then they can progress on to uh, checking and trying ketamine as a means of helping their depression and anxiety. Thank you for all of that. That was wonderful. And even giving the updates of the things that I think, at least for pediatrics, we necessarily don't know the new, new updates. So thank you, Dr. Garcia. Uh, A question I often get is, finally, when you get, you know, the kids to buy into seeking therapy, you know, even the parents, they ask me, well, where do I find a good therapist or psychiatrist? Where do I even start? So how can a person try to find their best therapist or psychiatrist? There are many routes to finding a good psychiatrist or therapist. I think the first decision is, am I going to look at a therapist? Am I going to look at a psychiatrist? Am I going to look at both? And what the data shows is that people who do therapy alone get better. People who do medications alone get better. But the people who do better for the longer amounts of time are ones that do both. So when you're looking for a good psychiatrist or a good therapist, word of mouth is probably where I start. If you know someone who had a very positive, emotionally corrective experience with a therapist, try to go down that road because you already know firsthand that they are skilled and they can help someone get through a difficult time. But we're living in the world of insurance and that for many people dictates who they can see. Different types of commercial insurance will only reimburse if you see a certain set of contracted therapists and psychiatrists. And for many What I recommend is contact your insurance, get a list of all the approved therapists and psychiatrists, and then, and and again, the next step is something that you kind of have to take with a grain of salt, okay? I don't want you to go to health grades and start reading reviews of disgruntled patients because typically it's the disgruntled ones that end up putting reviews. Where I actually reference a lot of my patients is a website called Psychology Today, And the reason why I like this website, it's not a review-based website. It is a website where it allows the therapist to give you their own little biography. So you learn about where they trained, where they went to school, what they see as their area of expertise and focus. Reading that, most of the time, will ring true. You'll connect to what their bio says, the principles in it and be like, yes, I feel like this therapist is going to understand what I'm going through. And you can pursue and reach out to that person. Just because of the name psychology today, it doesn't always mean that it's just going to be for therapists. They also have psychiatrists on it. Really, I find that to be the best way is find out who your insurance is contracted with and do your own research. 
unfortunately, there are going to be some individuals that don't have insurance or they may have state funded insurance and you have to go to certain clinics. And if that is the case, you know, you can always go to the clinic and you don't have to feel stuck. If they connect you to a particular therapist or psychiatrist and it's not a good fit, you don't have to feel bad to ask to switch providers. Because what has been shown to be most helpful in the setting of therapy, and even with psychiatry, is what's called therapeutic alliance. How engaged and connected, how understood do I feel by this person? If after a few sessions, and I usually tell my patients anywhere from two to four sessions, if by the end of the fourth session, you're still walking out of there feeling like this person just doesn't understand me, move on. You have to find someone who understands where you're coming from, who, who's going to sit and is going to listen to what you feel to be the most important drivers for your depression and anxiety. I feel like that, if you can start with addressing those pieces, typically you'll find yourself connected to someone who will be beneficial to you because one person may bond with this type of therapist, but you may not. And it doesn't mean that the, that person's not a, a, a good therapist. It just means that that's not a good personality match for you. Yeah, definitely. I think it can. It can be frustrating for patients to have to jump around to a few people, but I think it is part of the process. You know, sometimes you're going to find the perfect person on the first try, and sometimes it's going to take a couple of different people, but don't give up because that therapy, like you mentioned, is so, so helpful in the overall treatment, the long-term benefit for people struggling with depression and anxiety. Agree. Um, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask about is, you know, as pediatricians, both Dr. Zuma and I have seen many children and teens who come to us with symptoms of depression or anxiety, or sometimes both, and we do have conversations with them about treatment options. Now, sometimes we experience pushback from patients or parents about either therapy and especially about medication. I think a lot of people are afraid to take medications for these conditions for many reasons. Um, sometimes they're afraid of the side effects. Some people are afraid they'll become addicted to or dependent on medications. Also, I think some people feel like they shouldn't need medication. I think I felt like that when I um, started treatment too. They feel like maybe taking medication is a sign of mental or spiritual weakness. So what do you say to patients who are really concerned about these issues, but maybe really would benefit from medication? In those situations, I try to explore with the patient themselves, what are your fears? If their fear is that they're going to become addicted, then I can focus on the discussion of these types of medications. Now, I know psychiatric medications have a bad reputation for side effects, being addicted to, and, and there are definitely classes of medications that fall in under the world of psychiatry that are addictive, okay? Those are medications that are considered to be abusable, all right? And those include the benzodiazepines and the psychostimulants. Those are ones that we've all heard about being abused. That's your Xanax, your Ativan, your Clonopin. Um, that's going to be your Adderall your Ritalin, all of those types of medications, they are habit-forming, okay? And, and they can lead to addiction in that you can use them recreationally and you can experience a high. And, and to me, that's where I, I really try to focus on the definition of addiction. It is when your body craves that medication 
And if you abruptly stop it, you can experience significant withdrawal symptoms. And the the benzodiazepines are the worst. And in fact, having a severe benzodiazepine dependence, whether they're using it for therapeutic reasons or they're using it for recreational reasons, can actually kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, The psychostimulants, on the other hand, the Adderalls, the Ritalins, people can have withdrawal symptoms. Um, But a lot of times these are behavioral addictions. I want the effects. I want to feel the euphoria associated when I use this medication at higher than recommended doses. And that's the thing that I want to highlight also is that these medications are addictive when you use them at higher than recommended doses. Your doctor is not going to prescribe you medications at a dose that's going to get you to feel euphoric and to get you to feel high. That is never the therapeutic goal. Now, there are different types of medications that if you abruptly stop them, like let's use, for example, if you were on Zoloft, which is a serotonin-based medication, and if you were, you've been on it for two years and you've been at a high dose, let's say it was helpful at one point and you're like, okay, I'm doing better now. I'm just going to stop this medication. It's never recommended for you to abruptly stop a medication that works on the brain. Okay. Psychiatrists, when they start you on these medications, they slowly work their way up over the course of weeks to months. And the reason for that is your body adjusts, it acclimates, it works towards achieving a state of what we call homeostasis, which is a normal state of functioning. Uh For your body to adjust to medications, it takes that amount of time. But guess what? It's also true on the other end. So abruptly stopping an antidepressant or a neurotransmitter-based medication is never recommended. If you want to get off of these medications, just talk to your psychiatrist. Talk to the doctor who's prescribing them to you, and they will work with you. They will slowly, over the course of a few weeks, sequentially, thoughtfully decrease the dose to where you don't experience untoward effects. Definitely. Yeah. Um, a lot of those antidepressants that we do use commonly in primary care, like the Prozac and Zoloft, mm-hmm. they do. I've seen, you know, teenagers or young adults say, oh, I'm feeling so much better after being on them a few months. They stop them right away and they have some of those effects. And even though we try to warn them about that, sometimes people, they're feeling better, they're eager to stop. But I'm glad you mentioned that because um, the effects can be pretty severe if you stop it abruptly, like you mentioned. Correct. But, you know, there's a lot of stigma associated with taking medications. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and that's something that I usually try to describe in the context biologically. And I explain that depression and anxiety have been associated with low levels of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And if we can try a medication to do that, and sometimes it's people have abnormal serotonin receptors that run in their family, which is why it's an inheritable disorder. If mom had a abnormal receptor for serotonin, you could very much inherit that. And by virtue of that abnormal functioning receptor in the brain, you can have low serotonin levels and may benefit from having a medication that corrects that. It would be the same as people who have type 1 diabetes. Your body doesn't have the ability to make insulin. Does that mean that you don't take insulin? No. We know how to fix this. Science is a blessing. Science 
tells us, hey, I can make insulin and I can treat this disorder. It's the same thing with depression and anxiety. Science has allowed us to identify what the abnormalities are, and now we have medications focused to correct those abnormalities. Yeah. And I think one important thing to know, too, is that for most people, medication is not going to be forever. You know, I took medication for four, almost five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's quite a while, but I was going through medical school. It was a very stressful time in my life. My psychiatrist and I wanted to wait until really I was at a point where there wasn't so much stress that if I stopped it suddenly and I regressed, it wouldn't pose a huge risk to my life. <laughs> so, you know, it's not going to be forever though for most people. You know, most people take it for you know, anywhere from six months to two years. I don't know. What's your experience with that? Well, the recommendation is different for depression and anxiety. Okay. Now, when we're dealing with a major depressive episode, the the studies show that most people experience depression when it gets to the point of it being a major depressive episode with physical symptoms affecting your quality of life and your ability to function. Most people can experience symptoms up to 18 months. So if you get on a medication and you experience benefit, you're doing well, things have corrected, what they recommend is if it's your first depressive episode that you get to a point of being in remission, I'm better, I'm feeling like myself again, and then from that point, what we call remission, waiting six to nine months, and then if you're still doing well, you can taper. Now, the recommendations and the length of time that you stay on them is also dependent on how many episodes of major depression you've had. If you've had one discrete episode, great, taper off of it. But let's say there are some individuals who go on and have a lifelong struggle with depression. After your third episode of depression, the likelihood of you experiencing a future depressive episode increases. You go from 50% from having a first episode to a second. Then from a second to a third, it goes up to about 75%. If you've had three episodes of major depression, the likelihood you will have another one is in the 90s. So for those individuals who have had that many depressive episodes, one, we think that it's oftentimes more biologically driven and there may be a stronger role for more long-term medication management. But by and large, for most people, it's just one discrete episode. Like for yourself, when you were in medical school, Medical school is is a situation that takes you to your most challenging experiences. You've never been stressed to this degree. Uh So it really challenges individuals to their very core. And so that's not likely. Thank goodness we don't live in in that type of environment for the rest of our lives. But it can trigger an episode. So it's just being mindful of how many episodes you've had. Now, anxiety disorders are a little bit different. Sometimes therapy can really give people the coping skills for both anxiety and depression to where you now know, I know how to take care of myself now. I know how to stay balanced. I know that I need to eat well. I need to sleep eight hours a day. I need to exercise. I need to see my friends. I need to spend time with my family for me to be centered, for me to be balanced to prevent future episodes. So therapy is one of the integral pieces in learning yourself and learning what you need to do to be able to help you cope through life happening. And that can also decrease your epi- your likelihood of having future episodes and not needing to stay on medications long-term. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely what happened with me is that, you know, I, 
I did go to a cognitive behavioral therapist for, I think, two of those years towards the end. And that really gave me those skills to really change the way that I was thinking, to change those negative thought cycles, so that when I did stop medication, I had all of that therapy and all of those techniques from cognitive behavioral therapy to fall back on. And so it's not like life was, you know, perfect and easy from then on, but I never got back to the point where I was severe enough that I felt like I needed medication again. And that's the course for many people who do have what I call a, a trial of, a, you know, medications to help with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So um, you touched on a topic about the stigma of depression, and I wanted to go back to that a little bit. I find obviously, especially in a lot of the minority communities that the stigma with depression and anxiety and treating is big. After my uncle passed away, I actually did, we had to do an independent study project as part of our medical school requirement. And I did mine on suicide. And I did a project with the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. And I had Univision contact me to do a piece on it. And I did. And when I talked about suicide, I included the word to die in Spanish. And I noticed that when they went through it, they edited out the die part. So it just shows how much of that stigma is there within our communities. What other misconceptions do you encounter about depression and anxiety? Oh, my goodness. I mean, the most common ones that, you know, is you should be strong enough. You have a family who loves you. You have a roof over your head. You have clothes on your back. You have opportunities in front of you. What do you have to be depressed about? You have all of these basic necessities, but sometimes that's just not sufficient to prevent a depressive episode. Um, And a lot of adverse events, despite having and being blessed with these other necessities, can bring about depression and anxiety. And sometimes one traumatic event is all that it takes. Having, you know, I'll use you, Dr. Zulma, since you were so kind to be open and, and share, you know, with your father struggling with alcoholism and being verbally abusive, you had a roof over your head, right? You had two parents. You had all these opportunities. Look at how great you are. You're a doctor now. What do you have to be depressed about? But all of those, the verbal abuse stays with you. It affects you. It hurts you. And it impacts your own narrative. And there are a lot of, I want to say, in minority-based groups that believe that, you know, that depression and anxiety really don't exist. It's just a sign of weakness. And that if you can't keep yourself together is a negative reflection on your family. You know, you shouldn't want to do that. You don't want to make your family look bad, do you? And that is also one of the misconceptions that I see. But typically, the most common one is if you have a roof over your head and you have all of these basic necessities is that you have nothing to be depressed about. Or you can talk to us. You don't need to go and talk to a professional. I mean, just open up with us. And sometimes it's just not that easy to be open about what you're going through with loved ones, especially if they're the reason why you're experiencing those depression and anxiety symptoms. And again, so much of it is, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want them to feel bad about themselves. Um, And so a lot of times minority-based groups will bottle it up. They'll put it aside or they'll hide it. I've I've had other, you know, young people come to me and say that I've I've approached my mom and dad about seeing a therapist or getting on medications and they refused. They said not while you're under our roof will you do that. And unfortunately, it has led many to 
sometimes go on to have a more severe depressive episode. And sometimes it takes, you know, something significant like a suicide attempt for a family to change their mind. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes for the, the young adult to go and hide it from their family, which is not what they wanted. You know, they wanted to be open and upfront. And, and it's just a, a really sad situation where you see stigma within the different minority groups. And a lot of it is just because they don't fully understand where it's coming from and how it's affecting them and, and that it's something that truly can be treated. You know, Dr. Garcia, I'm curious how you approach this because I often get uh, patients who are either depressed or have anxiety. And a lot of times the parent also has it, most of the times I would say. And when I discuss with the parents about they themselves seeking therapy and they don't want to, and the patient feels, I know I will feel better if my mom or my dad seeks therapy, how, how do you get that patient motivated enough to focus on themselves to get themselves better and realize that maybe they can't control everything their parent can do? I always say that it's everyone's personal responsibility to manage their own health. And with that comes with recognizing that you don't have control over other individuals. And a lot of therapy focuses on being able to focus on what is in your control. If you try to focus on things that are outside your external locus of control or things that you have no control over, it only perpetuates and makes anxiety and depression worse because you're trying to exert what little energy and motivation you have on things that no matter how hard you try, you're you're setting yourself up for failure. But what you can do is if you can't change the situation you're in, what you can change is how you cope with that difficult situation. And that's where you have control. You have control of how you let this environment affect you. You have control of what coping skills you can learn to help yourself continue to achieve your own personal goals. And sometimes it's the child setting the example for the parent. Look at all of these other things that I've been able to accomplish. The parents sometimes can even see the change in their child or their adolescent or their young adult. And with that, sharing your own personal experience sometimes rings very true when it's like, you know, mom, I used to have panic attacks just like you. I got on medications for a year and I seen a therapist. I'm still seeing my therapist, but I haven't had a panic attack now in three months and I'm doing better and I'm not feeling sad anymore and I'm not feeling worried all the time. When you're ready to experience something different, you should seek help too. Thank you for sharing that. I hope the listeners, I wanted them to get your input because that's a common issue and a common question I get from a lot of the teenagers and young adults. Going back to that stigma we mentioned, you know, I think um, the stigma of seeking mental health of like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be depressed because my life is fine. I grew up in a pretty religious spiritual household. And I think part of what can sometimes play into that is this feeling that, oh, you know, if you pray to God, if you follow all of the teachings of your religion, then you should be okay. Like prayer should be enough, relying on your family, relying on God, relying on the spiritual teachings should be enough. And I have seen that, you know, that sort of thought process play out for a lot of my patients and people that I know. But, you know, it, it's, it's a complicated issue. 
Um, your spiritual beliefs are very personal, mm -hmm. but for me, it was not enough. Like I was doing everything that I had been taught to do. I was praying as intensely, as fervently as I could, and it just wasn't enough. So I think that you don't have to abandon your spiritual beliefs or practices, but you use them in combination with these other modalities, these therapies, these medications. And there's no shame in that, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, I, I very much agree with you. I went to a religious-based medical school. I really feel that that trained me well for the incorporation of spirituality, religiosity, and medicine. In one of my surgical rotations, and we were in the surgery clinic, there was this wonderful picture of it was the operating room. You see the surgeon in full-on surgical gear with a patient on the table, has the surgical instruments in hand. And for this particular religion was uh, Christianity. So it was Jesus Christ was there holding and guiding the surgeon's hand. And how I connect with individuals who say that, you know, that God should be enough. And it's like, well, I feel that God's hand is at work in many situations. God's hand was at work to get you to meet your loved one, right? To get you to meet your best friend. Why wouldn't God's hand be at work to get you to connect to a good doctor? God's hand was in work to allow humans to develop science, to understand the way and the complexities in which he built our body, the way he built our brain and gave us science. Mm -hmm. Why not utilize the gifts that God gave us to help ourselves? Um, is oftentimes how I try to reframe use of medications and use of psychiatric treatment for very religious individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that framework for that. All right, Dr. Garcia. So on a more somber note, uh, one of the most tragic consequences of depression is suicide, as we experienced in my family. Sadly, we know that suicide is the number two cause of death for teens and young adults in the U.S. Can you comment on this? Yes, it, it, it's sometimes when you look at it and you frame it like that, the second leading cause of death in youth age 12 to 18 and the second leading cause in young adults as well for college age youth age 18 to 22. When you think about that, that includes cancer, car accidents, heart disease, you know, kids who, you know, end up having leukemia. It beats out so many of those illnesses. And when you think about the fact that suicide is associated with psychiatric illness and we have treatments available, suicide is one of the leading causes of preventable death in our nation, meaning we have treatments for it, stigma, lack of access, lack of knowledge, lack of support from family are barriers to individuals seeking out treatment. Suicide is something that all individuals should be aware of, um, to be knowledgeable of. Schools, teachers, school psychologists, pediatricians should be talking about this. I mean, we hear tomorrow is the, the, the biggest NFL game that there is, and the NFL supports breast cancer. Breast cancer is not as prevalent. Suicide kills almost as many people as cancer itself. So when you think about that, why aren't we having more media attention? Why aren't we focusing on awareness of suicide so that our youth and our young ones are more aware of what it is that they're experiencing 
that they're not alone and what to do if they find themselves in a situation of where they are feeling suicidal. So speaking of that, what can young people do if they are feeling suicidal? What are your recommendations? Or people who have maybe friends or family, close loved ones who they think might be struggling with suicidality, what can be done? Well, the first thing to do is to reach out. If you feel like you have a loved one who's struggling, communicate that to them. Hey, I noticed that you're just not like your normal self and I want you to know that I'm here to help. Is there something going on? Is there something that I can do? I love you. Your family loves you. We want to make sure you're all right. That you know you can make a connection on a personal level to someone you love. Um, you can encourage them to seek out support through a therapist, through a psychiatrist. And for some people, you know, religion also is very much a big support. Anything that's going to help uplift someone in a positive way, getting them to think about that and to focus on that can be very helpful. When someone is dealing with feelings of hopelessness, they won't, don't want to burden the people around them. And so sometimes just frankly saying that, I want to do this. I want to be here for you. I always tell my patients, all life is precious. And suicide is a finite decision for something that's oftentimes temporary. You're not always going to feel like this. We're going to get through this together. Communicating that that person is not alone in what they're going through and that they can rely on you and trying to build as much as a social support around them obviously including mental health professionals. There are a lot of suicide hotlines. And now we're even in a situation where suicide hotlines will do texting. You can text a lot of different safety lines and having someone on the other end who's trained, who can help things focus on a positive note, help get them to help. And when it does transition to the point where there's some very real legitimate safety concerns, getting mental health professionals dispatched to where that person might be to get them out of isolation and into a safe space. And oftentimes that's in being taken to the emergency room and then from there going to um, an inpatient psychiatric hospital um, so that we could focus and be very proactive at that point. We need to lean in. We need to be 100% focused and in tune with what is happening with that individual. There are very few psychiatric crises or emergencies, but suicide is number one. Thank you for sharing that. And I would add to that is for those of you who are listening who are in high school, if you have any concerns for a friend at school, talking to a teacher, a counselor, anyone at school can also get your friend some help. Absolutely. One last question, Dr. Garcia. This past year has been very challenging for many people due to the COVID-19 pandemic, academically, financially, socially, and in lots of other ways. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected people's mental health generally from what you're seeing? One of the biggest things that the COVID pandemic has done is led to an intense isolation and loneliness for many people. And adolescents and young adults are considered to be more vulnerable just based off of where you all are at in your growth as individuals. When you're younger, you very much rely on your parents. As you get into middle school, social relationships, your friends become more important. As you enter high school, your social life, 
your future endeavors, school, all of those things become your priorities. And in that moment, when the pandemic hit, it took away those connections. We no longer are seeing our friends at school any longer. We're no longer having that social um, support that for many young adults took for granted. You take that away and you automatically start leading to a place of loneliness and social isolation. And those are the two things that 70% of Americans cited as what they felt most affected their mental health. 70% of Americans experienced loneliness and social isolation because of this pandemic. And those symptoms right there are gateways to the development of depression and anxiety. Now, this wasn't just a two-week shutdown. We're now dealing with this for months and months on end, and we're hearing about this term pandemic fatigue because it just, when is the end? Is the end in sight? Is it now, you know, we have a a vaccination? Is this going to get better? But that length of time that we've been in this pandemic is enough time for many people for that loneliness and social isolation to breed a very significant depressive or anxiety disorder. And not only that, it's now that's present and it's gone untreated. And now they're at a point of where they're experiencing suicidality. One of the things that this pandemic has caused is a mental health crisis. Many, many therapists and psychiatrists that are out there are booked. It's very hard to get in. And if someone is dealing with a crisis now, sometimes the lead times to get an appointment with a therapist or psychiatrist can be weeks. And for someone who's struggling already, that's too long. And that's when we encourage a lot of our patients to go to the emergency room. And I know that the emergency room is not the most therapeutic setting, and it can be very scary, but they can get you to help. And a lot of emergency rooms now have psychiatrists, or they partner with mobile crisis teams that have therapists, whether there be licensed clinical social workers marriage and family therapist, sometimes it's a psychiatric nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, Um, and some of them even have psychiatrists that can be there to meet with you and develop a plan. The emergency room is there as the last stop. We are here to help, and a good portion of my time, probably close to 30 to 40% of my time is spent in the emergency room dealing with individuals that weren't able to access care and are at a point of where they're experiencing suicidal thoughts and they come to the emergency room. Because it's a very different situation when you're dealing with someone who's coming to the emergency room in the context of severe depression and and the beginnings of suicidal thoughts versus seeing it on the other end where they're coming in after a suicide attempt. And I see so many young people coming in after a suicide attempt. They have to be admitted to the hospital. They have to be admitted to the ICU. Sometimes they have to have surgery. The impact is significant. And it's just very real for so many people how much hurt and pain leads to suicide. And when people are isolated and when people can't get to help in a timely manner, suicidality is something that is is becoming more of a reality for many of our young people. And I would always encourage you to 
reach out to your teachers, talk to your school counselors, to go to your parents if you feel safe to do so. And if at the very least your primary care doctor and when you feel that you have nowhere else to turn, the emergency room is always there for you. Thank you so much, Dr. Garcia, for being our guest expert psychiatrist on the show today. I'm sure many listeners will find this helpful either for themselves or for people they care about. And remember, if you or a loved one ever has thoughts about suicide, ask for help. Go to your local emergency room. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline available 24 hours a day at one 800 273 8255, or you can even call 911 if it's an emergency. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you learned something that will be helpful to you at some point on your life journey. If you have comments or questions about this episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please contact us. We love to hear from you through our website at www.futureminoritydoctor.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Peace and love, everyone. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.